2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting verse 16. Uh, about a year or so ago, uh, Samuel and I, we made a trek up to the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex to go to Legoland. All right, anybody else been there? All right, any, you, got, you excited to go back? Okay. I mean, it was, it was, you know, it was kind of a cool place. There was all kinds of uh, Legos everywhere. They're all over. You could build stuff, run it down a track. There's even kind of different rides you could go on. There's one you could shoot things. And uh, and you, you also had this little dealy thing. I, I don't know what you call it. I just call it a dealy thing that uh, you get stamped, all right? And Sam and I went around. Got, we even went, we, we don't tell too many people this, but we even went into the Princess Land area just to get the stamp. That was it, okay? So no worry, all right? Brandon, don't worry about me. Uh, that's the only reason we were in there. But there was one part that Samuel thought was pretty awesome, and there was uh, this part where you could go and you could see a 3D movie. And they had actually four different movies, all right? You can see how excited I was, all right? They have four different movies about different Legos, some kind of Chima Lego and some other kind of Legos. I have no idea, but I went through it, all right? We even worked it out so that when we come out, we go to a different area, then we we come back and see the movie we hadn't seen yet, okay? So we had it down. I was a pretty awesome dad that day, all right? And so, but as we went in each time, as you go into a 3D movie theater, they give you glasses, okay? And these glasses so you can see when you're in there. Well, what's the temptation, though? Every time you go see a 3D movie, what do you want to do? Come on. You want to take the glasses off, don't you? And you take them off and you look, and it doesn't matter how hard you squint and you turn and twist, it still looks all distorted, all right? It doesn't look right, and then, so I, I tried that and see how it went, and then I had to put the glasses back on. And when I put the 3D glasses back on, then I could see what a chima was, all right? And I could begin to see clearly of what the story was being told. I tell you this illustration because I believe that God has given us uh, 3D glasses that come when we put our faith and trust in the person and work of Christ, and as we trust in His Word, He gives us 3D glasses so that as we live here on this earth, in this world that is distorted with afflictions and sufferings, they're 3D glasses that give us a divine framework to truly really see the picture that's going on. And I don't know about you, but it's a temptation in my life when I'm in the midst of walking through this world and through the difficulties of this world, I kind of tend to want to take those glasses off. And when I do that, when I take those divine framework glasses off, ones of faith in God and His Word, things begin to get distorted and the afflictions and the suffering seem to overwhelm. But it's in those times I've got to be reminded to put the divine framework back on. In our passage today that we're going to look at, the Apostle Paul lays out for us a divine framework through which we can look through, not just at the temporal things, but that we also, as we look at the temporal, we also begin to see the eternal as well. It's the perspective that can enable us, empower us to, preserve, to persevere through suffering. It's the kind of divine framework that believers for thousands of years have looked through so that they might endure the persecution and the martyrdom that happens to those who have put their faith in Christ. 
It's the kind of divine framework that those in Nigeria and China and Sudan and and uh, North Korea and other places, it's that kind of divine framework that has enabled them for, to be able to persevere for the cause of Christ and live for Christ. It's also the same kind of divine framework that any of us need when we face suffering and affliction. It's the kind of the glasses that we need to wear when those who are experiencing chronic illness and pain it's the kind of glasses that need to be worn when a woman I know who is losing her eyesight continues to press on for the cause of Christ. It's the kind of framework and glasses that an individual that I know with MS that continues to persevere and to live for Christ in the midst of the affliction that they're facing. It's the kind of glasses and framework that one who is, who is battling against the, the, uh, the effects of cancer continue to go on and can use their cancer even for the glory of God because they wear these divine frameworks. It's the kind of glasses and framework that a woman who is confined to bed for the rest of her life can continue to live for Christ even though in her confinement because she's looking at things differently. She's not looking just through the temporal, but she puts on the divine frame of reference and she looks at the temporal through the truth of eternity that God gives us. I want to encourage you. That's my goal here this morning. Because the reality is, there's not a one of us in here who will not experience affliction. It will come. Death will come. Loved ones will die. How in the midst of this do we keep this divine framework? Well, what Paul is doing here, if you look with me in verse 16... Here Paul writes, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart. That is, we don't quit. And who he's talking about is about himself and and his other ministers in Christ that are partners with him. And he's writing to the church at Corinth, and he's in the midst of defending his ministry against some things that were being said about him in Corinth. But now he's to the part, he's even telling them how, here's how we persevere in the midst of affliction and suffering. Here's how we come away, and he just got done talking about the resurrection of Christ and how he will be resurrected. And he says in light of that, he says, therefore we do not lose heart. Then in 2 Corinthians 5.8, he says this, we are of good courage. That is in the midst of his suffering, midst of his affliction, because of these truths he's about to share, he doesn't lose heart. He, he remains courageous in the midst of us. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, He is giving these, us these truths as well so that we might be encouraged by them and so that we might also take these truths and when it is appropriate, share them with others who are suffering in the midst of affliction. I remember not long ago, one of the stalwarts of faith in our church had come to learn that uh, his life was about to pass here on earth. He was about to leave earth here, and he was about to go into heaven. He was one of the stalwarts in the faith. You didn't hear much from him, but he was the guy behind the scenes. He used to wander the halls out here, keeping an eye on our children and making sure that they're staying safe. And I remember going to his hospital bed. He was there with his wife, and as I, I was there to encourage him. And so I opened up, and I opened up the very, this very chapter here in 2 Corinthians 5, and I began to read this to him. But as I read it, as I looked at him, he's quoting it back to me. Here I am reading it, and he's quoting it with me. 
He had his glasses on. He was grounded. There, even in his death, I'm encouraging him, but he's encouraging me. So we need these truths. We need to be anchored in these truths as we go forward in life. So, so what are these truths? Well, look at the first one with me. I want to suggest the first one as we persevere through affliction is knowing God is still working in us even in the midst of affliction. Look how Paul starts there. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, that is, though the outer body is decaying, as it's, it's falling apart, it's breaking down, I mean, any of us over 40 realize that now? I mean, what happens over time is as much as we lift weights and do all those other things, over time your, your, your shoulders begin to stoop a little bit more. Your hair begins to turn gray even when you try to tell the hairdresser to cut the gray out. I'm beyond that point. can't do it anymore. And slowly our, our bodies and our wears out and this wonderful youthful appearance begins to fade. In fact, some of you were in here and uh, some of that you were younger, even some of you young marrieds, this is going to be hard for you to grasp some of this. You're so young and viral. Just here's what I want you to do, all right? If you're in here and you're like that, what I want you to do is take notes, okay? Because I guarantee you there will become a day when you're going to pull those notes out of your pocket and say, man, I need these because it will come. Amen? It will. So what is it he gives here? So he, look, look what he's saying here. He says, so he is experiencing this outer decay. It's something I know about Paul is that his outer decay was accelerated because of the ministry that he did for Christ. His travels all over and missionary journeys, not only from illness and sleeplessness and lack of food, but he also knew what it meant to be beat. He knew what it meant to be stoned by rocks thrown at him. He knew what it meant to be imprisonment, and this took a toll on his body. In fact, the, the, uh, the temptation is when we bring these truths or share these truths out of Paul, we say, well, no wonder he could say these things. No wonder he could be encouraged because he's the Apostle Paul. Let me tell you something. He may have been an apostle. He may be a sent one, but he was just as human as you and I are. Matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he says this, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. The Apostle Paul despaired of life. He suffered. So he knew, he had experienced these truths that he's sharing with us. Now he goes on, he says, The outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. It is the inner man, that is our soul, that, that when through new birth in Christ, we have been made new creatures in Christ. That is being renewed. Now, I want to show you something grammatically. When we look at this phrase, being renewed, it's what grammarians call a present passive. And the present aspect of it lets us know that this renewing is something that goes on and on. It's not something that just happens. It's not like you just arrive and got it all together, but it's an ongoing renewal. But the passive sense of, of this verb, the passive voice that we call it, indicates that something or someone is working on Paul to renew him. Now we know this to be, first of all, the Holy Spirit. But I want to suggest also what God is using to renew Paul is his very sufferings and afflictions that he's experienced. 
I want to suggest to you that we can know that even in the midst of affliction, that we have a God who doesn't stop working in us. He actually uses that in his sovereignty to continue to change and transform us. 1 Peter 5 says this in verse 10. He says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, that is mature, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That is, God uses his suffering. He uses our suffering in our lives. I can't tell you how God has used affliction in my life to draw me deeper, to a deeper hunger for his truth. If it wasn't for affliction, I don't think I would have hungered as much for it. I could tell you about times when God has used affliction in my life to, to cut out the pride that just so loves to just rule in my life. I could tell you of the times that he has used grief to teach me what is, matters most in this life and in all eternity. I could tell you how he has used affliction in my life to make me a more compassionate person and a more compassionate minister. I can tell you how, and through affliction, he has taught me over and over again how to trust him. Trust me, Matt. Trust me. God will use the afflictions to grow you and renew you. There's a second thing here, though. Look at verse 17 with me. He says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Which while we look at the things which are seen, why we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That is, Paul I had on his divine frame of reference. He had his 3D glasses on. And when he looked at things on earth, he just didn't look at the temporal. But again, here he is, he's looking at the temporal through the eyes of things that are eternal. And that changes your perspective when you do that. It actually changed his measure of weight is what it changed. Now, listen to this phrase. He, he describes this, first of all, as this affliction as being momentary in light. Is he making less of it? Is he saying it doesn't hurt? No, he's not saying that at all. What he's saying is, in light of the glory of God that is produced, the weight of the glory of God that awaits us in heaven, that when I compare that to the afflictions and sufferings I go through now, it makes it lighter. It makes it momentary. It's just a part of time relative to all eternity. That made it heavier. In fact, there's a phrase in here. It's a, it's a Greek. When it says, far beyond all comparison, the Greek text literally reads, Huperbolin, ice huperbolin. You're like, why, why are you saying that? Because this word huperbolin is where we get our word hyperbole. And we use it in a sense that it's exaggerated. The Greek here is using it in a sense, and this, using this term twice like this, it means it's a double expression of the strongest emphasis. Like he's, he's trying to really lay this home, that, that it's not just exaggerated, but it's beyond what we can think. He is saying, in essence, that this is beyond comparison. It's, it's hyperbolin. It's, it's, it's more than you can think, and that's why it's so weighty. That's why it outweighs affliction. What is interesting is that verse I read you earlier in 2 Corinthians 1.8. He used the same word, hyperbolin, to express 
the intensity of his suffering. He said his suffering was being beyond the strength. But here in this verse, he, he used it one time in that verse to explain his suffering, but here he uses it twice to speak of the weight of the glory that awaited him in heaven. And so much more. So as Paul goes through this, he is not focusing on the temporal alone, but he's focusing on the eternal. As a, as a father, I've been through, or I've watched, three different uh, births. And uh, just to tell you how, uh, man, i I got a great admiration for, for women, all right, and the strength that they have. Matter of fact, on the third one, as I was holding my wife's hand and watching her get an epidural, uh, I turned white. And the doctor said, Mr. Reynolds, you need to go sit down. I didn't want to because I was married to be tough, you know what I'm saying, Josh? He says, no, you need to go sit down. So I went and sat down. But my wife went on. There was one man who, as he uh, spoke to women who were having babies over the years, he, he kept asking them, he'd ask them this question, what helped you or what, what was it that, that kept you to continue to choose to go through this ordeal of, of pregnancy and delivery and time and time again? What was it? And a statement that he kept hearing over and over again is this, I made it by telling myself over and over it will be worth it in the end. It will be worth it in the end. And in many ways, that's what Paul is saying here. As he looks at the afflictions, it's as if he's telling himself, hey, the way of the glory that waits ahead, it's worth it in the end. And we've got to tell ourselves that. Remember, there was one man who put it this way. He said of Paul, when he is hurting, he fixes his eyes not on how heavy the hurt is, but on how heavy the glory will be because of the hurt. Now, to get a closer look at this glory, let's look at the verse 1 of chapter 5. Look at it there. Because he perseveres by looking forward to the full experience of God's salvation. Look what he says here. For we know, and that's a statement of confidence. He's, he's saying it's because we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in heavens. Now, I've got to be honest with you guys here. I'm not much of a camper. All right? Last time I spent any time in a tent, uh, I broke the zipper on the tent door. Okay? And I got so frustrated with the, the tent, I told the kids, hey, you pick up the computer with the DVD, all right? You get out of here, all right? So we left our backyard and we walked into the house. Okay? <laughs> That's how much a camper I'm not. And I don't know what you all are thinking about camping, okay? Because just let me tell you something. Um, it might be nice for a little while, but... Well, let's be honest. Let's get honest here. Camping out of the tent, let's just face it. You don't want to live there, do you? I mean, you think about it. There's like a short time in Texas you can actually go camping in a tent. Because it's either too hot or it's too cold. And if it's not too cold, it starts raining and it leaks, right? All right? And if it's not leaking, it begins to get frayed. It's tearing up. And before you know it, you're ripping a zipper off your tent. And see, Paul is not speaking about a tent. As a tent maker, he's using this as a metaphor to speak of what our bodies are like. And what Paul has seen is that our bodies are limited, just like an earthly tent. And they wear out. And he is ready to chuck the tent, and he's ready to receive the building of God, which is his resurrected body. He's looking forward to that. He's looking forward to that body which is spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
that's described there. He can't wait. Look what he says here. He goes on in verse 2. For indeed in this house, in this earthly house, this earthly tent, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we have putting it on, or we could say when we are clothed or after we have put it on, uh, will not be found naked. And what he's saying here is he's saying, look, you are not going to be disembodied spirits. When you die or when, you're, when the Lord comes back, you're not going to just be disembodied spirits for eternity. That's what he's saying. He's saying so, so comprehensive is God's redemption plan that not only does he save our soul, but he's going to take our bodies and he's going to glorify our bodies into the likeness of Christ in some way, some fashion. That's God's plan of redemption. It's a wholehearted plan. Paul is saying, ultimately, we don't just receive just, just the spirit, but also the body. And then he goes on, look what he says here. For while in this tent we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, he longs for that new body, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. That is, he's looking forward to the day when this body, and if we're honest with ourselves, this body is a body of death. I mean, as try as the doctors might, as much as they patch us up, much as they repair things, it's a body of death. And he looks forward to that day when this body of death will be swallowed up in the e- body of eternal life that God will someday grant us. You look forward to that? That's what he's talking about here. That's what encouraged him. Matter of fact, he, he groaned for this. Uh, this word groan can be to moan. It also has a sense where it can mean to sigh. And I think maybe it's sigh in the sense of longing for something. I think Paul has both of these. He's, he's tired of this body breaking down, but at the same time, he's groaning in the sense that maybe he's longing for that body to come as well. It's this body it's described in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. It says this, the Savior, that the coming of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has. That's what He's going to do someday. Now, God wants to see... Anyone here like assurance? You like, I mean, does anyone else here... I mean, you can raise your hand, all right? You like security? Right, God wants us to be so confident in what he's expressing here that he is so confident that we're going to receive a resurrected body someday that he wants to give us assurance. So look with me to the, the next verse there, verse 5. Look what it says there. It says, Now he who prepared for this very purpose is God. That is, God just didn't come up with this. I mean, he, in eternity God had this plan of how he's going to work this out. And now he, he says, and he, he wants to be so encouraged by or so secure that he says this for this very purpose is god who gave us the spirit as a pledge that is his holy spirit who is god was given to us as a pledge or as a another word we could say is a down payment a, a deposit a earnest payment a, a first installment or a guarantee he said i want you to know this resurrection is going to happen and, and as a down payment on that, I'm putting my Holy Spirit within you so that you can be assured. So well, Matt, how, how, how does that assure me? This past week, I went to a lunch with a, a brother in Christ. And we were talking about how um, we struggle with our flesh. 
And we know that there's certain things that God's calling us to do and leading us to do, and, but because we're fleshly and we don't want to do that, we, we don't do it. But oftentimes in the midst of that, God comes along and he convicts us and he, he, he and we talked about how we have to put that, that selfishness off and we have to go and put on what Christ would have for us. And what that is, is when we do that, that's the working of the Holy Spirit in our life when he prompts us to put that off. That is, every time the Holy Spirit restrains you and I from selfish behavior, every time that He reminds us of Scripture that we need to hear, or He convicts us of sin, or prompts us to love someone who that is not easy to love, that is an evidence of the reality of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that is a reminder of the pledge that this isn't the life, but it's a taste of the life that will be yours for all eternity. Amen? He gives you a taste of that. And Paul was encouraged by it. Now look what he says here as well. He says, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. What's he talking about? I mean, how can we, I mean, doesn't Paul know theology? How can we be absent from the Lord? The Lord is omnipresent. Well, we know he's not. That's not what he means by it because he just told us the Holy Spirit was given to us as a pledge. So what does Paul mean? Well, I think he means this. We were absent in that for now we walk by faith, not by sight. That is, for now we don't hear the voice of the Lord. We don't see Him. We don't touch Him. We don't come face to face with Him. But there will be a day when we die or He comes back and gets us that we will. And so we are absent from the Lord in that sense. In the meantime, we trust Him and we walk by faith and His promises, and His truth. Look what he goes on to say. He still longs and looks forward to that. He says in verse 8, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Here's what I think Paul is saying. Earlier, I think Paul was looking at it this way. I think Paul was looking, he says, Lord, I'm so tired of living in this body that I want you to come back now, gather up your believers, and give me a new body now. Okay? Now what I think he's saying here in verse 8, well, if that doesn't happen according to how I want it to happen, I'm still good to be gone from this world and present with you. I look forward to that and I'll wait for that body later. I think that's what he's saying here, that he's, he's longing for, for that body. I can't tell you how much of a comfort that is to, to me at the death of my father about 10 years ago. I remember 10 years ago when we had to actually give the okay for them to pull the tubes out, to take life support off. As we read in Scripture and as we prayed over my father and sang songs, we eventually watched the life. I mean, you can actually see it. just the life leave his body. And I can't tell you how much this Scripture here was like a, a balm to the soul of mine. How it comforts me to know that though my father's life went out of him here, he was present with the Lord. And those are the kind of truths that you and I have to hang on to. Our loved ones are going to die. And if they are in the Lord, we have this kind of comfort and truth. And you have that kind of comfort and truth when you face death. In verse 9, though, we find some more truth. Because not only does he long for that day, 
And if you can't experience the resurrected body now or just to be with the Lord, he has something else within his divine framework of how he looks at things. Look what he says there. He says in verse 9, Therefore we have, all, have as our ambition, whether at home, all right, that is at home in the resurrected body or, 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 or here, that is, I mean, or absent, we want to be pleasing to him. About 18 years ago, I had a major eye infection. It was so bad, there was fear that I was going to lose the cornea of my eye. And so my mom, being the prayer warrior she is, she went into action. She was enlisting all kinds of people to be praying for me. People I had no clue who they were, and they're out there praying. But there was this one particular lady that I had heard about who had been praying for me, and she, she lived in a nursing home. Couldn't get out of the nursing home. Um, and so one day she called up, and she, she called me. I've told this story before, but she called up, and over the phone, she prayed for me. She prayed that my eye would be healed. Prayed for me other things. So I got off that phone, and it was, it was weeks later, my eye did begin to heal. The infection went away. I'm not even sure exactly what the infection was, but it went away. So I determined, well, I'm going to go meet this lady. All right, this woman's calling over the phone to someone she does not know. I'm going to go meet her, and so I did. And when I got there, they they told me I had to wait. Okay, couldn't go right in because they needed to prep her because she couldn't get out of bed on her own. So they had to go in and they had to help her and put her up. And so when I came in, she was sitting there in the chair. And so I come in and I tell her thank you for her prayers. And uh, well, as she's sitting there, she says, "Well, may I pray for you?" And I'm like, "Sure, you pray for me." And then she said, may I anoint you with oil? No, that was new to me, totally. It was not in my framework or tradition, okay? But I'm like, all right, this woman prayed for my healing. I'm better. She can pour whatever she wants on me, okay? <laughs> and so she, she just grabbed my hand. She took out her little, she had a little oil vial, vial there. She put it on my hand, and she began to just rub it into my hand. She praised God. She prayed for me. She knew I was going into the full-time pastorate. She prayed for this ministry. She prayed for what I'm doing right now, 18 years earlier. And when I, when I walked out of that, I was so moved by what she did out of a woman who couldn't even get out of bed, all right, couldn't stand up to pray for me, had to sit down to pray for me. I was so moved that I came away thinking, this is, this is what I learned from this verse that we just shared with you in this woman's life, is that we don't ever, ever, ever stop living for the Lord. Even in the midst of our afflictions, God says, I can use you. Please me. Glorify me. Because can, can you imagine what glory was brought to God when this 90-some-year-old woman who was no doubt nearing death, who she's praying for people by phone, can you imagine the impact that that made on people? Just the impact on me. My, my exhortation is don't ever waste your afflictions. You say, what, what kind of statement is that? It's a statement of truth that God is so sovereign, He is so powerful, that if you would look at things with a divine framework and realize that God can even use your afflictions and your sufferings for His glory. I mean, show the world what it looks like to trust God when things aren't going right for you. Show them that God is so trustworthy that you'll trust Him in the midst of your difficulties and your circumstances and your trials and afflictions of life. And you will please Him and you will glorify Him. Show God, minister to others out of your suffering. 
and your affliction. Use it when appropriate to glorify and please God in the lives of others because there's people suffering all around us. There's a daughter of a missionary to Congo Republic tells how as a little girl she took part in a rally to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the coming of missionaries to that part of Africa. And she talks about how the lectures and the speeches went on and music. And, but then all of a sudden, at the close of all this, an old, very, very old man got up. And he asked the crowd to be silent. And he wanted to speak because he would soon die. And he didn't want to die without sharing what he had to share. And he said this to them. He said that when the missionaries arrived, his people thought them strange and their messages dubious. The tribal leaders decided to test the missionaries by slowly poisoning them to death. Over a period of months and years, missionary children died one by one. Then the old man said this. He said, it was as we watched how they died that we decided we wanted to live as Christians. See, God can use our dying for His glory. He can use your suffering and your afflictions. So if you're faced with cancer, don't waste your cancer. Use your cancer for the glory of God. Show them what it looks like to trust God in the midst of cancer. If you have chronic pain, show them what it looks like to trust God in the midst of that. Or whatever your suffering or affliction, lean on God. Let Him meet you there. Let Him hold you up and use, him, use you for His glory proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And realize this, that Christ does not overlook a life lived for Him in the midst of suffering. He does not overlook it. He does not forget that one in Africa that we never hear about, that one in Nigeria or that one in China that we never hear about, but stood for Christ, wouldn't, wouldn't deny Christ, but would face suffering. He does not forget that. Look what the text says there. It says in verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what which he has done, whether good or bad, or we might say worthless. Now, I think this is a different judgment than the great white throne judgment that takes place in Revelation 20. This is not a judgment for our sin. This is not a judgment of our, our salvation. Okay? That's, if anyone is in Christ, there is no longer any condemnation. Your, your salvation is secure. Unbelievers will be judged at the great white throne judgment. What he's talking about here, that there is a day that God does look at what did we do with the time and opportunities that he gave us. What were the motives in which we served him? He takes account of that. And I'm not going to focus so much on the negative aspect of this. What I want to focus is on the, the positive aspect. The central point of this is that what the scriptures are saying is that what we do in the body is important and it does carry weight into eternity. And he's saying, I am not going to miss out. I'm not going to overlook the sufferings that you had to endure and how you used them for my glory. I take note of that. And you will be recompensed for that. Remember this truth. It will help you persevere. Lizzie Atwater was a missionary to China in the late 1800s. Along with her husband and at the time of, uh, at a time there was a great rebellion there and there was persecution happening. She was pregnant nine months. She couldn't sleep and her, she got up and she wrote a letter because she knew she was facing death. 
as a missionary. And here's what she wrote to her family. I'm going to read it to you. It says, Dear ones, I long for the sight of your dear faces, but I, I fear we shall not meet on earth. I'm preparing for the end very quietly and calmly. The Lord is wonderfully near and he will not fail me. I was always restless and excited while there seemed a, a chance at life. But God has taken away that feeling, and now I just pray for grace to meet the terrible end bravely. The pain will soon be over, and oh, the sweetness of the welcome above. My little baby will go with me. I think God will give it to me in heaven. My dear mother will be so glad to see us. I cannot imagine the Savior's welcome. Oh, that will compensate for all these days of suspense. Dear ones, I live near to God and, and cling Closer, cling, cling less closely to earth. Let me read that again. Dear ones, I live near to God and cling less closely to earth. There is no other way by which we can receive that peace from God which passes all understanding. I must keep calm and still these hours. I do not regret coming to China, but I am sorry I have done so little. My married life, two precious years, have been so very full of happiness. We will die together my dear husband and I. I used to dread separation. If we escape now, it'll be a miracle. I send my love to you all and the dear friends who remember me. How could someone write a letter like that? How could someone who's facing imminent death, and I believe the answer is because she could see things as they really are. Because she had a divine reference to where she not looked just at the temporal i'm not saying don't look at it but as she looked at the temporal she saw it through the lenses of all eternity and my exhortation to you brothers and sisters in christ is that when you face affliction and you will that you might persevere with that because you're looking to faith and the promises of eternity and god's presence in your life now Dear God, we come and we praise you. We praise you that, Lord, you are not afraid to tackle difficult situations. Lord, you, don't, you do not avoid the difficulties and the struggles and the pains of life. You don't do it. You go right after it. And you give us truth in the midst of it. And you give us truth, Lord, to which if we will trust in you and rest in you, Lord, you will help us persevere through the difficulties of this life. Lord, my prayer is for those who do not know Christ. Lord, may they come to a realization that if they do not put their faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and in Him alone, there is no hope beyond this life here. There's just eternity in hell. So Lord, I pray they might come to a place of repentance and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, that we will take these fundamental truths and we will look at the lenses of these truths in all that we do in life. And may we live lives that bring glory and honor to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.